This week on Myths and Legends, we'll finish up the current run of King Arthur stories, and we'll meet back up with Merlin. We'll see that you can be both a powerful wizard and a conjurer of cheap tricks, especially if you're serving as a wigman for a very sleazy king, who's willing to put all the political, military, and magical powers at his disposal toward going on a date. Also, you'll see why you definitely want to jump the fence when you're at Stonehenge and bathe with the stones. On the Creature of the Week, it's an over-the-top, horrifying, headless horseman from Ireland who looks and smells like a block of cheese. This is Myths and Legends, Episode 6C, How I Met Your Mother. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures around the world. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Some are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Previously on the show, I started at the very beginning of the Arthurian legends. Vortiger murdered his way to the title of king and drove the rightful heirs, Aurelius and Uther, in exile. He then invited the Saxons to England to keep his people in line. They deposed him and oppressed the native Britons. He found Merlin, then a child, who prophesied the arrival of Constantine's children before disappearing into the forest. Aurelius then came with an army, surrounded Vortigern's castle, and burned him to death. Aurelius and his army packed up their tents, still covered in ash, and set off east to confront Hengist and his forces. He staked everything on getting there in time giving up taking his vengeance on Vortigern and accidentally burning down a town. It would be worth it, though, if he was able to keep the Saxons from catching them unaware in the middle of a siege. Well, he gets back to London to find that the Saxons, after dealing with revolts and learning of Aurelius's victory in the west, have fled to Scotland. His army barely had time to sit down before they're marching north to finally meet Hengist. Going through the towns, they find burnt husks of churches and buildings, leveled by the Saxon army passing through. So what follows are a series of battles, and I'm nearly completely uninterested in describing battle after battle. Aside from the fact that they're legends and likely never happened, I'm more interested in telling character-centric stories rather than just relaying the facts. Here's how it goes. Hengist rallies his men with a rousing speech, but they still lose, and Eldol, the Count of Gloucester, is pretty awesome. He's one of those nobles that was supposed to have been murdered at the treachery of the Long Knives, as is actually called historically, when the Saxons captured Vortigern and betrayed all the nobles and stabbed them. Eldol wrenched the weapon from the Saxon meant to kill him, and killed several in the escape. He fled back to Gloucester, and he has been holding it against the Saxons ever since. Once he heard of Aurelius and Uther, he rallied to their banners and has been riding with them ever since. It wasn't relevant to bring him up last week, but he was there when Vortigern burned up. Anyway, he was fairly cheesed with Hengist for murdering nearly all of his friends in front of him, trying to kill him, and then attacking his kingdom, so he made it a point to seek him out in battle. He defeated him in hand-to-hand combat, but purposely didn't kill him, instead dragging him through the ranks of his defeated troops by his helmet. He said that he deserved, quote, a short shift for the mad dog, who deserves neither pity nor mercy. This is the source of this war. This is the shedder of blood which is a pretty awesome quote. They use a Bible verse to justify executing Hengist, and they do. And then they learn that the Saxons have scattered and are regrouping, with their leader, Hengist's son, Octa, holed up in York, 
but as Octa sees Aurelius's army approaching, he surrenders. It would just be a war of attrition, and they're throwing themselves at the mercy of the Christians. Aurelius pardons them, once again using the Bible as a guide. The Britons talk amongst themselves, and decide that they're going to be super forgiving. I mean, Great Britain is a big place, and there are plenty of uninhabitable places for these people to live, with the Britons really kind of not understanding the meaning of the words forgiving or uninhabitable. They drive this defeated army, who is definitely nursing a grudge into the worst corners of Britain. Yep, they drove this hardy, warrior people together in a situation that will only increase their anger towards the Britons. It's like hitting the snooze button on a time bomb. Still, the Britons were victorious, and I shouldn't give the impression that it was completely a bad idea. The Britons took hostages from the upper-class Saxons, and if you don't know what this is, it was pretty common throughout history. When Kingdom A wanted to keep Kingdom B in line after an uprising, war, or whatever where Kingdom A was the winner, Kingdom A would generously offer to keep some of the children of Kingdom B's rulers in their capital. That way the noble children from B could get to know the children from A, B could be educated and learn the society of A, and all those other reasons that really just mask that Kingdom A can kill the kids of Kingdom B if they ever decide to cause any more problems. Anyway, the Britons took hostages and had the Saxons trapped in inhospitable places, so they were held back at the moment. Aurelius calls a meeting of all the nobles that were left, because Hengus had created, um, several vacancies at the top. Aurelius had to appoint many people. He was also a great guy and rebuilt churches and all that. Yep, he was a fairly honorable, pretty boring guy. A few years pass, and some of the nobles that had fled with Vortigern had found their way back into good graces presumably after being captured during the siege. Aurelius learned of a place near Salisbury where Hengist, who during his rule apparently took up the hobby of slaughtering monks and burning down monasteries, decided to splurge and committed a larger-than-usual massacre. Aurelius visited the site, and he was so moved that he decreed that a grand monument be built up to memorialize the people. Aurelius wanted it to be so amazing that none of his builders could even begin to plant how to construct it. Like I said, though, some of Vortigern's men had earned their way back to court, so they went to the king. They told him of a child that Vortigern sought out in the last days of his life, one that is said knew the past, present, and future. They think the boy had slipped off before the castle was burned, and by now he would be at least through his teenage years, perhaps in his early twenties. If anyone could figure out how to realize the king's vision for this monument, it would be this Merlin. Aurelius sent men out to every corner of Great Britain looking for the wizard. A couple years after this, deep into Wales, Merlin was sitting by a fountain. In the years since Vortigern, he and his mother had lived a somewhat normal life, but he knew the day would come where all of that would change. Even if a friend hadn't warned him that the king's men were looking for him, he would have known. This king was an honorable man, though, and it was also kind of a big plus that he wasn't searching for Merlin to use him as a sacrifice. He didn't know when it was coming, but he knew the moment for him to return to power when he saw it, and it was here. He took the well-worn path down to the village, and he met with the king's men. He traveled with them to London. Standing before Aurelius, he could see that the man was congenial and friendly, and, better yet, he was respectful. The first thing he asked Merlin was to prophesy something. Merlin said a flat, no, but he explained that his gift was only to be used in the most dire of circumstances, directed by wherever his powers came from, 
lest they dry up and never return again. The king didn't try to intimidate him, but agreed and told him all about the monument. Merlin smiled. He had a plan. Long ago, as we all know, giants roamed the earth. Giants who lived in Ireland heard of some magic stones near Africa, so they went and got them and brought them back to Ireland. For the centuries that followed, normal people, and giants maybe, would wash the stones and then pour water over sick or injured people, healing them. He finished up by telling Aurelius that these stones were still in Ireland, and recommended that he build a monument to his church out of these clearly pagan stones, probably completely understanding the irony, as Merlin himself was an agent of God, maybe, built out of pagan and demonic parts. Aurelius said, that's awesome. Here's what they're going to do. Merlin and Uther, Aurelius' brother, are going to lead a small diplomatic force consisting of a massively intimidating army over to Ireland, and they'll politely just take the stones from the land. If, by some small chance, the Irish decline to give up their magical landmarks, the good, honorable Aurelius tells the Britons to just kill a bunch of them and take the stones anyway. Apparently the Britons' problem was not that they were being bullied by the Saxons, but that they were being bullied by the Saxons. They didn't seem to have a problem with it if they could be the ones invading the country and taking whatever they wanted. Everyone says that this seems pretty reasonable, so they do just that. Predictably, the Irish, led by King Gilemanius, really didn't want to give up the stones. So Uther leads the army to kill a lot of them, and they retreat. They approach the giant's dance, the stones, and the men try to move them. They're utterly unable to budge them. Merlin then tells them to step back. This is why you bring a wizard. He says an enchantment or a prayer or something, and he ducks around the stones and then walks out. He tells the men to try again. The stones should be as pebbles, and they do. They're able to lift them no problem. It went from literally moving a boulder to moving something akin to styrofoam set pieces. They take the stones back to England. Merlin is lauded in the king's court, and they stack the stones one upon another outside Salisbury. When they're in place, Merlin says his enchantment again, and they regain their weight and density, settling into the ground. Because it's not at all foreshadowing, Aurelius builds a sepulchre, or a tomb, in the middle of the ring of stones. These stones, called the Giant's Dance in Ireland, will come to be known by a different name, Stonehenge. Aurelius then surveyed his realm. He had restored the ancient order of things for his people, defeated the Saxons, and avenged his father. He was going to be all right. So what if he had displaced and subjugated an angry Saxon army in his land, and just killed a bunch of people in Ireland and left a king alive for them to rally behind? That's not, that's not anything to worry about. It was then that he learned that a son of Vortigern had lived. Passant, or also called Pacentius, had fled to Germany after his father was killed and was given asylum by, of all people, the Saxons. Oh, and they had landed an army in the north. Oh, and they had returned to their old M.O. and were burning up the countryside, toppling churches. He sighed. This is why the medieval Britons couldn't have nice things. He mobilizes an army and quickly routes Passant. Passant, instead of sulking back to Germany, goes up to Ireland and visits with King Gilemanius, who, yeah, would love to fight him some Britons. They join up together and sail for Wales. Aurelius, on his trip back from the north, thought that he was getting sick, but he also thought that it could be just allergies, so didn't think it was anything to worry about. They resupply and set out from London again to meet the army in Wales, this time with Uther and Merlin with him, to meet the Irish, Saxons, 
and Passant in Wales to settle all the family business. As they were passing Winchester, though, he found that he was too sick to go on, and sent Uther and Merlin. Merlin knew what would happen, that this would be the last time he saw Aurelius, and he said a longer, sadder goodbye. Word traveled around the islands that Aurelius was sick, and that they were searching for a doctor. A man named Appus, a Saxon that had been living in Britain since the time of Vortigern, saw an opportunity. He goes to Passant, Vortigern's son, and secures payment and promise of advancement, and then obtains a monk's robe and vials of what is definitely good medicine and not poison. He then gets in the habit of shaving his head and pretending to be a monk. And, sorry, that's the second monk habit joke I've made. He arrives a few weeks later in Winchester. They wave him through. Sure, his head is freshly shaven, and he kind of has a German accent, and he came from the direction of the front, but what's not to trust about this menacing-looking stranger who wants to give the sick king something from his vials? So he gives Aurelius the poison, and the man who was born with a world full of enemies and only managed to make more finally died by their hand. Appas manages to escape, and as he's running off across the moors, he sees a shooting star darting across the skies. It looks like it's in the shape of a dragon, and when that dragon reaches the end of its course, two other stars shoot out of its mouth. That night, Merlin speaks his first prophecy since the ones he told Vortigern when he was seven. Now, in his early twenties, he needs to spur this Uther on. He says through tears for Aurelius that Uther will be a great king. The dragon head and the shooting star was him. And, as an aside, this is actually where Uther gets the name Pendragon. Pendragon meaning dragon head. I've been calling him Uther Pendragon the whole time, and a lot of sources do, but we'll stick with this as how he got the name. Merlin tells Uther he's a valiant knight who will be king and the father of kings. He needs to attack now, and he can utterly destroy the forces of Passant and the Irish. The king has seen the power of this young man who is to become his most trusted friend. He nods and orders his men to attack in the night. Merlin watches Uther gallop off at the head of his army. With this man, maybe he can make a place for himself and the Britons in this chaotic and violent world. A decade later, Uther is waiting for a banquet to begin, to celebrate the final defeat of the Saxons and the capture of Acta. Merlin, the king's top advisor, comes in and informs him that his nobles were seated for a feast. Uther sat at the head of the table and looked at the faces of men he had served with and whom had served with him in the taking and protection of their lands. His eyes laid on the face of Gorlois, the aged Duke of Cornwall, the man who had advised him well in his fight against the Saxons. After Aurelius died, the Saxons under Octa and Elsa, Hengist's sons, took their oath to not make war upon him very literally, and decided since Aurelius had died that their oath no longer applied and they had the right to take back what they saw as their home. They plotted in the inhospitable places Aurelius had exiled them to, and recruited the Saxons that had escaped after Passant died at the hands of Uther in Wales. When the realm was quiet, and Uther thought he had finally achieved peace, they attacked. They nearly overpowered the Britons, but Gorlos advised the king that all men should pray and humble themselves before God. The Britons were Christians, and these men pagans, so the only reason the Britons should lose was that they were not praying to their savior. They prayed, and God listened. They took up their arms and snuck down to the city where the Saxons were at night, finding them all asleep. One text describes it as the following. 
The sore play was right, Mary, for the slaughter was very great. The Britons thrust their weapons deep into the breasts of their throw. They lopped off heads and feet and wrists from their bodies. The Britons ranged like lions among their enemies. They were as lions a-hungered for their prey, killing ewes and lambs, and all the sheep of the flock, whether small or great. See, prayer really can move mountains. Or at the very least, saying a nominal prayer before sneaking into a city at night can help you lop off the heads, feet, and wrists of sleeping men, women, and children. What's all the more crazy is that these are the good guys of the story. As a quick aside, if you have knowledge of the Bible, in 1 Peter 5.8, the devil is actually called a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in numerous places, Jesus and his followers are called lambs and sheep. I don't know if it's just some intentional, biting, tongue-in-cheek commentary on the legend that a writer used that imagery, or if he really didn't understand the deep and hilarious irony, but I thought that was interesting. Back to the feast, Luther's gaze moved one more person down from the duke to the duke's new wife, and it didn't keep going. It stayed there for so long that when Ingrain, the woman, looked up, she met the eyes of the king. She looked away, looked back, and he was still looking. She offered up a small, polite smile before looking away. Merlin saw the exchange and brought up a conversation with Uther on a contrived premise to get him to look away. He could see the king glancing back at the woman every so often, though. This was going to be a problem. Over the next few days, all manner of gifts came to the chamber in which the duke and his wife were staying, but none of them were for the king's old friend and comrade. The king persistently sought an audience with the young woman, but she, giving a hard no, continually rebuffed him. He would give her attention over any others at banquets, despite her being very clear that she was not into him. One night, she explained everything to her husband, who was both enraged and terrified. Igraine said that they should leave immediately, before it progressed any further. Right now they were in the king's household, and though there were customs to protect guests in such situations, the king was now the most all-powerful person in the realm, and lust could drive him to do terrible things, as it does. They fled that moment to the stables, and rode quickly for Cornwall. That evening, as they sat down to dinner, Uther noticed the duke and his wife's spots were empty. He asked his guests about it. Them? They left, someone said. Yesterday, actually. They didn't even pack up. They had the things sent after them. Weird. The king was angry and called his private council, who said, Yeah, they left. Who cares? The king says that he really wants to sleep with the duke's wife. Can't they get them back? The council says that, well, they... Wait. What? You want them to come back so you can sleep with his wife? The king says, yes, can't we get them back? His council says, well, sure, I mean, you could summon them back, and if they refuse, you could consider them in revolt. But, really? I mean, in the past 20 years, we've dealt with the murder of three kings, a secession crisis, a usurper king, not one, but three invading armies, and the revolt of the Saxons that settled here. And you want to risk civil war because you want to sleep with a woman who, by any metric, is not interested in you at all? Yes, Uther says, absolutely. That's a great idea. Let's call them back, and if they don't come back, let's consider them in revolt and raise an army against them. His counselor sighed and did as he said. The duke was smart, though. He knew Uther was a persistent, ruthless man and would not stop before he got what he wanted. 
he sent word ahead to prepare his armies to meet the kings and to prepare a castle on the coast for his wife. It was a castle surrounded by the sea on three sides and deep into the duke's territory. It was supremely defensible, and it would be the last place Uther would be able to take should he be successful in capturing the rest of the territory. The king brought an army against his former friend who, surprise, refused to come back, and Gorlos had holed up in a defensible castle closer to the border. The duke sent word to Ireland, to the king there, for aid against Uther, and only needed to wait. Uther could see that his adversary was well provisioned, and remained camped with his army outside. Uther was pretty overdramatic, though, and one of his advisors, a baron named Ulfin, saw that if he didn't have Egrain's love, the king would die. And because that's definitely a thing, they call Merlin. As we've previously covered in episode 3a, it's apparently not a big deal at all for sorcerers to transform people to look like other people. And Merlin proposes just that. That he transforms Uther to look like the duke, Igraine's husband, so Uther can finally sleep with her. I can't really justify Merlin's role in the whole Stonehenge thing, but his magic here does help to save some lives. Uther has shown his willingness to go to war against one of his subjects on a completely unjustifiable premise and it's unlikely he's going to relent before he gets what he wants, as the duke won't surrender and suffer that extreme shame. It's either transform Uther and help him to get what he wants, no matter how vile the man is, or thousands of people die in chaos, and the king still gets his sleazy wishes. Uther transformed into the duke, and Merlin and Ulfin into two of his knights, and they rode to Tintagel, where the Lady Agrain was living during the war. And there's no problem at all. They ride up and through the gates, and no one questions a thing. It's the Middle Ages, and this guy looks like the king, so this guy must be the king. It's not like he had to sit in the guard station in anxiety while they ran his ID, with hacker Merlin at a computer terminal trying to get him into the system before they scanned it. Nope, these were the Middle Ages, and he said he was the king, he was flanked by the knights, and that was good enough for everyone involved. Let's get back to being constantly drunk and dying of preventable illnesses. It was good enough, too, for a grain. Uther goes to the woman in the guise of her husband, and they spend the night together. It's from this union that King Arthur is born. Merlin was anxious the next morning, and he, still in the guise of a knight, gets Uther, and they rush past the guard, riding out into the wilderness. Egrain thought that it was nice to spend the night with her husband, and was surprised to learn that not only was he besieged in the castle all night, but that he had been killed, and the brief war was over before it begun. As it turns out, Uther's men got bored that night and made an unsanctioned attack on the castle, but they happened to succeed, and they sacked it and killed the duke. Everything was coming up Uther. His power had been demonstrated to his nobles. He had gotten what he wanted with the grain, and she was now at liberty to marry him, him completely missing the point of why she and her husband fled in the first place. He sends his advisor Ulfin to act as an intermediary. Egrain sees the inevitable, and surrenders the castle to Uther's forces. She then agrees to marry him, absolutely under her own volition, and not at all because he just killed her husband and brought an army to her front door. I mean, she essentially has no choice in the matter. But much like Yvain in episode 1b, the writers whitewash everything and make it look like she truly loves him. Uther doesn't know this, though, but Octa and Osa, Hengist's sons, have escaped from their prison in London. It turns out medieval jailers have a pretty dull life, and they bribed him, promising him a high-class station in Saxony, and they take him on the next ship. Six months pass, and it becomes obvious that Egrain is pregnant. 
and Uther tells her, much to her definitely not fabricated delight, that he's the actual father. Merlin, though, is acting strangely. He knows what's coming up in the near future. Young Arthur, the boy not yet born, needs time to grow before he has the crown thrust upon him. Time he will not have if he remains with his parents. Merlin calls a meeting with Uther and Egraine. They're shocked that he wants to send their child, an heir, away, and at first they don't hear of it. Then Uther studies the man that has been with him his whole life as king. He had been an advisor to two kings before Uther, and the man was known for his knowledge of the future and magic. He had helped Uther keep his crown over these years, and if the wizard was that deadly serious, it must be important. Uther put his hand on his wife's shoulder, and she became quiet. He asked the wizard what they should do. Merlin said that not too far away from here was a man of integrity, named Ector. Uther must send the boy away when he was still a newborn, and he would live in the care of Ector, and be raised up as his son. Ector recently had a son, named Kay, so his wife would be able to feed the young child who was still inside of a grain. Uther wanted to ask why this needed to be done, but he could see the sadness in Merlin's face, and he put it all together in his head. He knew his time was short. His head bowed. He said that they would do this, and a grain wept. Months later, there was a scream of a child from inside the castle, and as soon as he was cleaned off, he was wrapped in a gold cloth and delivered to Ector, who was waiting with his retinue just outside the castle walls. There was more crying from the castle, as Uther and Egraine realized the full weight of the impossibly hard decision they just had to make. In the following months, it became apparent why Merlin had sent the boy away. Uther became ill, and his problems were compounded when Octa and Osa, the sons of Hengist, had heard of his illness and used the opportunity to invade. They fought bitterly, and the Britons lost many men, but eventually Octa and Osa were killed, ending the line of the Saxon king Hengist that had started all these problems. There was still the matter of all the Saxons in Great Britain, though. Like I said, they were there to stay, and some sympathized with the sons of Hengist that the Britons just killed, the men they saw as their rightful kings. A small conspiracy formed to poison the king. He had lost a child a couple years ago, this was well known, so there was no heir, and the realm would descend into war should they strike before the king could cement a succession plan. Uther had been ill for some time, and it was well advanced. The conspirators found that they couldn't get close to him, as one Saxon had been able to do with Aurelius. The king was smart, and only let physicians he could trust administer him medicines. These Saxons couldn't get into the front door, let alone the king's bedchamber. It was then that they learned of a spring. The king had taken to drinking water from a natural spring, and it was open to everyone. They had decided to hedge their bets, and dumped way too much poison in the thing. It did its job. More than that, actually. No one suspected the poisoning of the king because over a hundred people died from the spring before the source of the sickness was discovered and piled over with dirt. Uther died the same way his brother did, though not without taking every precaution. After he died, he went to the same place as his brother and was buried at Stonehenge. Though not a good man by any modern interpretation, he seemed to be an appropriate man for the job of king in these times. He was shrewd, brave, and ruthless, and he secured his kingdom in a time of great strife but he was also really, really sleazy and pretty much a rapist. So I'm not going to commend him much beyond saying that at least he didn't drop the kingdom in the toilet like some of his predecessors. 
the Saxons in Great Britain once again sent word home to Saxony, and once again the Saxons invaded. Putting the issue of secession on hold, the earls and barons fought off the Saxons and kept them from taking the island. Then, finally, a war of secession ensued. It got bad, and though the stories really don't say how bad, it led to a time, at least a decade after the death of Uther, where Merlin was able to call all the competing factions to London for a peace talk on Christmas Day. He had been watching a vacant throne for years while the different factions fought it out for the role of High King. Things were about to reach a breaking point, though, and a solution had to be reached. He knew who the rightful king was, but everyone else had to see. Somewhere in the crowds was a boy, supposedly the son of Sir Ector, who was about to shape the world he lived in. In him was royal blood. He just didn't know it. At this point, everyone knew of Merlin's power. Those that hadn't seen his enchantment of Stonehenge had heard of his prophecies or any of the various other rumors about him. The War of Succession had a stalemate. They were all hoping to move on, and they trusted this man, even though it was rumored that he was half-demon, to show them God's will. They went to Mass, but were surprised to see outside a sword stuck in an anvil sitting on a stone. All around that stone read, in shining gold, Whoso pulleth the stone out of the sword and anvil is rightwise king-born of all England. After Mass, everyone tried their hand at pulling the sword out, but none could even get it to budge, let alone pull it out. They figure the real king has to be someone there, but try as they may, they can't get it to work. Instead of just ignoring this whole thing and resuming their war, they decide that the magician knows what he's doing, and they all wait around London for the king to make himself known. They leave some knights to guard the sword, and everyone participates in a grand tournament on New Year's Day. During the tournament, a young man sneaks into the courtyard. He's here with his household, and his brother, Kay, is fighting in the tournament here soon. Unfortunately, Kay left his sword at home, and since the boy isn't fighting, he offered to go get Kay a new sword. He had seen one in the courtyard, just sitting out, and it looked as if the guards had left to go see the tournament. He would just borrow the sword for a moment, for his brother, and have it back before anyone noticed. Whoever owned it must not care too much about it, anyway, since he just left it laying out here in the open. He was in such a hurry that he didn't stop to read the words etched underneath the stone. With very little effort, the boy known as Arthur slid the sword out of the stone and ran it to his brother at the tournament. That day, at the tournament, the son of Uther and the grandson of Constantine would make himself known. His name would become legend, and he would be the conqueror of faraway lands. He looked at a sea of people kneeling to him, at his foster father and brother also on the ground before him, and he could hardly take it all in. Much like the snow, though, the tranquility of his childhood would melt away as the spring comes, as he's forced to face the mean task of ruling a divided people. The next time we meet up with him, he'll be putting down several rebellions because all those people with armies who said they were cool with the magical king selection process were very much not cool with the magical king selection process. He'll manage, though, and the fires of war and revolt will temper a legendary king, the likes of which the world had never seen before. That will not be next week, though, but some episodes down the road. Next week, it's the one-episode story of The Little Mermaid. And I know what you're thinking, but please listen. It's so ridiculously darkly different that you really do need to give it a shot. I want to thank Nimbus Pixie, Jan Yap Shaveris, Gizby934, and Skizme, <laughs> I don't even know how to say that, sorry, for the reviews on iTunes. 
uh, Nimbus Pixie, let me know over Twitter or email or something what Asian folklore you had in mind, and I'd love to incorporate it. Likewise, if anyone has any corrections, thoughts, or requests, let me know on the site, on Twitter, on Facebook, or anywhere. I'd love to talk with you. Oh, and if you've enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Links to everything are in the show notes. The creature this week is the Dullahan, and if you're eating right now, you should probably pause this and finish your meal, because it's so disgusting that it's completely over the top. The Dullahan is a headless horseman from Irish folklore. He carries his head around with him, and it constantly has a huge, joker-sized grin that stretches from one side of his head to the other. He doesn't take great care of his head, though, and it's said to have the color, consistency, and smell of moldy cheese. But wait, there's more. He carries a whip made from a human spine with him, and he rides in a wagon made out of all sorts of grisly things. The lanterns he has with him are human skulls with candles in them, and the wheels are made from human thigh bones, and the covering for the wagon is made from dried and tanned human skin. We get it, Dullahan. You're a bad guy. At some point, it just seems like he's trying too hard. If he stops for you at night, that's it. He gets your soul, and as soon as he says your name, you die. There's no way to stop him, though. Gates, locks, and doors are all open before him. Luckily, though, he only gets to say one name per trip. Unlike seemingly literally everything else on Earth, he's averse to gold, so if you have even the smallest amount of gold on you, you can drive him away. Lastly, he doesn't like being watched when he's on duty, and even though he can only take one soul per trip, he might whip you with his human spine, or he can mark you for death in a ridiculous way by taking a huge basin of blood he for some reason carries around with him at all times, and dumping it on your head. Really, you're evil, Dullahan. We get it. Coincidentally, he's said to be active around the end of August or the beginning of September, around the time this episode drops, so the storytellers advise you to stay home with the curtains drawn. Not that it would do much good. If you happen to be listening to this episode while traversing the Irish countryside, be sure to have some gold on you, or you might get a very literal bloodbath. that's the show this week the theme song is by the band broke for free and the creature of the week music is by the noble steve combs links to other music i used during the show notes thanks so much for listening and i'll see you next time